0: So, our sermon text for today is Psalm 85. Uh, preaching for us is going to be our lead pastor, Kevin Larson. Um, again, that's Psalm 85. And this is going to be found on page 493 in the House of Quebec Bible. Uh, so, if you are physically able, would you stand with me and read the word of God for us today? this is Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O oh God, of our salvation, and put away our indignation. Your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Uh, Let's pray for Kevin. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak uh, through Kevin. We thank you for his preparation and for his love for this church body. I ask that you would speak to us and that our hearts would be revived uh, by this good message. We ask. Amen. Welcome once again. Good
1: morning. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to have some cooler days. I like to pull out my wool flannels the first chance that I can. I really like to grab another blanket and kind of burrow myself from the cold. But what about when that chill seems to work its way into our hearts, into our churches? When we find ourselves feeling dry and lifeless, um, the life that we once felt seems like a memory, the the joy that once moved our souls feels distant, what do we do? When we remember back, when the Spirit seemed to just propel us out of bed to pray, or when the presence of God in gatherings was powerful, even palpable, and then we can wonder what happened and how we could ever feel that way again, what do we do? Well, that's what I want us to ponder today as we look at Psalm 85 this morning. Next week, we'll jump back into our study in the Gospel of Matthew. But we also, once a month here in Karas, take a look at a psalm. Uh, a few years ago, we found ourselves regularly encouraging you to be in a psalm every day, to read it, to pray it. And then it hit us, if this, if this prayer book, this song book is so important for our lives, Isn't it also important for our life, our life together as a church? So we began this rhythm of once a month, and I think it's been a a good thing for our church. But you might ask, why are the Psalms so important that we would do one every month, and we'd encourage you to pray one every day? Well, put most simply, I think we just need their encouragement so much. Because in the pages of the Psalms, we see the, the full range of human emotion. And we see what God wants us to do with all those ups and downs. He wants us to to take them to Him. And here in Psalm 85, the Lord gives us some hope. He gives us hope for the days when our hearts and homes grow cold. So this psalm is about revival. Revival. One of my heroes and mentors, Ray Orland, says, speaking to pastors, that we shouldn't neglect the revival dimension in our churches. And I'm trying to heed his advice. But revival is a misunderstood concept. That may be why it's so often neglected. But if we ignore this teaching, we end up hurting ourselves. Because don't we so often feel dry and cold? We should be a people who pray and prepare for God to move in revival. We should be a people who pray and prepare for God to move in revival. That's my big idea for this morning, um, what my friend John likes to call the soul tattoo for the day. That's what I want you to take from today and seek to apply to your life with me. But before we get there, you might have noticed the slide was up there briefly, but who wrote Psalm 85? Well, all the songs aren't written by David. There were others involved, and 11 of these songs or prayers were written by this, this group of men called the Sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. Now, back in the book of Numbers, the clan of Korahites are listed as one of the families or the tribes of Levi that took care of the tabernacle and the temple. They were servants, leaders in the worship of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 20 verse 19, in fact, they seem to be leading up the praise of the people. And this could explain maybe how they ended up penning some of these songs. And we'll talk about these guys in a bit. The sons of Korah, but I want to jump back in the passage, and there are three main encouragements that I want to give to you today. And here's the first: It's let's remember and thank our God for how He has moved in the past. Let's think about the setting of this psalm for a minute. You know, we're not positive what the setting was, uh, but maybe you're with us last week where where I talked about Jeremiah 29. And there, God's people are in exile in Babylon, and God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is telling them how they should live there. Here in this psalm, most scholars think that the nation is actually back in their land. It's not as great as they thought. Things are not going as well as they hoped. And they're looking back to then when God delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. Here verses 1 through 3 again. Lord, you were favorable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. So God had disciplined his people, he had afflicted them with suffering, but he had showed compassion upon them, he listened to their prayers, and he had brought them back to their land. The psalmists here are showing us how to remember and how to thank our God for how he's moved back in the past. And that's the first thing that we need to do whenever we feel dry and dead. As I thought about this, my mind goes back to a really tough time in my life where I was dating this girl. I was thinking about the future. And she came back from a trip to Venezuela, and she had not been thinking about me, and suddenly I was a part of her past. And I was pretty devastated. But I remember those days and weeks and months following that as some of the sweetest times I've ever had with the Lord. I mean, I'm talking about studying the Bible for hours a day with just deep abiding joy. I also think back to the days of starting Chorus, and I'd, I'd walk downtown to work at a coffee shop each morning, and I'm talking 5 a.m. early, you know, and I'm not a morning person, and I would just wonder. I remember wondering, thinking out loud to God, I just finished a master's degree, I did pretty well, why do I have to do this? And I'd, and I'd also think, I'm awkward, I'm introverted. I'm not this charismatic church planner. How is this ever going to happen, Lord? But God was faithful somehow. Karas came to be. And I can think back when I'm really struggling. And, I, and I've felt some of this lately. And I can thank God, I remember back, yeah, she dumped me on my head. Whenever, God, you, you raised Karas from the dead. Um, do something great again, Lord. I want to see you move. I want to feel you in my life again. We can look at where the church is today, especially in America, and we can get discouraged. But we can look back, we can choose to look back and see how God moved back in the day, in our lives, in the life of the people of God. Now, of course, we can go back to the early church. We can read the book of Acts. We can go back to Acts chapter 2, where God's Spirit came down, where 3,000 souls were baptized and added to the church. But we can also think of stories from church history where God moved. One of my favorite is that of Patrick of Ireland. So he's sadly known best today for the one who gets people donning green and drowning in Guinness in March. But do you know what he should be famous for? Well, here's this guy. He's kidnapped as a kid. He's dragged from Britain into pagan Ireland. He's held there for six years where he becomes a follower of Jesus. He somehow escapes. He goes back. He gets trained in ministry in Great Britain. And then God gives him a dream to go back to the place of his captivity and share Christ where he ends up baptizing 100,000 people and starting this movement that impacted the world. Here's here's another story of what God did. Back on September 27th, September 22nd, 1857, Jeremiah Langefier holds this prayer meeting in New York City's Fulton Street Church. So the first and second Great Awakenings had come and gone. The church in America was declining. The country was actually caught up in some of the same arguments that we're having today. Immigration was surging. People were fighting over that. Slavery, this was pre-Civil War, so slavery was still an institution. It was practiced in that day. The country was divided, and then Wall Street tanked. So things were bad. And this this missionary, Jeremiah Lamphere, had an idea, pretty simple idea. He was going to get together businessmen for an hour each day over lunch to do nothing but pray. So that first day, a half an hour passed, and finally six people walked in, And they began to meet and kept meeting, and then suddenly everything took off to where there were 10,000 people every day praying in New York City, all across the city. And then it spread to the nation, it hit college campuses, and they say between 1856 and 1859, the church in America added almost 475,000 members. Historian Catherine Long says that movement was perhaps the closest thing to a truly national revival in American history. And it all started with just one fairly average guy inviting some some friends to come pray with him. So as we stand today in a nation that's dry and divided, can't we remember something like that and have hope that God would work again? Let's remember and thank our God for how He has moved in the past. Well, I want to encourage you and challenge you in a second way as we move to verses 4-7. through Second, let's ask and plead for our Lord to move in our present. Let's ask and plead for our Lord to move in our present. Let's be like Jeremiah and ask the Lord to work because times are also tough today. You might not know this, but church attendance is way down across the nation. Across America, a group of people that experts have called the nuns, those who in polls claim no religious affiliation has risen, so it's nuns, N-O-N-E-S. It was 5% of the population back in the 70s, but it's up to 30% of Americans today, nuns. Those who say they hold to nothing, they, they submit to no one. Well, you look at those inside the church, and it can even get more discouraging. You know, we have one group that's denied so much of the Bible out of fear, you know, bowing to the culture. On the other side is this huge group that's made an idol out of the American flag, and that's just maybe chosen to delete a whole bunch of other Bible verses. Both have really shirked Jesus, the king, and his kingdom of heaven, chosen the way of the dragon over the way of the lamb, things are arguably in a mess. What we don't need is to go back, though, to 2019. I mean, that's where so often our minds can go. The pandemic really just brought out what was under the surface. right? Things just boiled over. The result is what we're dealing with today. What we really need is not to go back to 2019 or even 2015, we need what's seen in verses 4, through verse 7. Hear it again. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Our Father has a reason to be angry ...as He looks at His people today. And He has every right to discipline us, to wake us up to Him. What we need is what's described in these verses, revival. Now you might be familiar with that word, you've probably heard it, but it's so often misunderstood. Now, some Christians just completely resist the concept. They they don't think that God works like He did in the past... You know, we have God's spirit, that should be enough. We're past the age of the works of God like that. Others think God will move if we just do the right things. If we repent enough, if we call out to him enough, he'll do something he almost has to. So that's God brings revival with conditions. Back in Acts 2, um This doesn't really square up with the Bible or church history. Back in Acts 2, in verse 43, it seems so clearly to be a work of God. It says that after all those conversions to Christ, that awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. That's not something that you can just schedule over a weekend or in four nights in a tent. You can't. You can't can't manufacture this. No, revival is God's prerogative. He does what he wants to do. Orland has written this book that I love entitled When God Comes to Church, and he says this. He says, revival is the season of the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. Revival is seasonal, not perennial. God causes it. We do not. It is the normal ministry of the gospel, not something eccentric or even different from what the church is always charged to do. What sets revival apart is simply that our usual efforts greatly accelerate in their spiritual effects. God hits the fast-forward button, and this blessing spills out from the church to wash over the nations with an ingathering of many converts. So that's what revival is. God works... God restores, He revives, He puts away His indignation, His anger toward us. He shows us steadfast love, and this is all because it pleases Him to do so. But hear me, it doesn't mean, though, that we don't have anything to do. We do turn from sin. He calls us to do that. We do call out to Him. He invites us toward that. But as Ray puts it elsewhere, the remedy for our deadness to God's grace is more grace. So it all comes about from him. He does that work in our heart. And our work is a response. I've heard Tim Keller compare what we're doing to building an altar. So in the Old Testament, you, you, you gather the wood, you grab a sacrifice, right? That's sort of what we're doing. We're preparing. But we can't call down fire from heaven. We can't. Others have compared it to sailing a boat. You can get the boat ready. Right? You can hoist your sail in the air. But you can't create wind. Right? It's God who does the work in revival, but he uses what we do as means of that revival. Back to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Many have pointed out that the same Hebrew word is found five times in this text. It's explicit in verses 3 and 8, and it's the word for turn, turn. But it's actually also behind the word for restored in verse 1 and restore in verse 4. It's even seen in the word revive in verse 6, then in verse 3. The psalmist here speak of God turning from his hot anchor toward his people, turning. And in verse 8 They speak of God not letting his people turn back to folly. So revival has this idea of turning. God turning away from his anger and back to his people. God's people turning away from their foolishness and turning back to their first love. Turning, that's what revival is. It's a great turn of God that results in a turn in us. Now when that happens, some beautiful things are seen among the people of God. Here's some of the marks that I've seen throughout history. These come from from author John Armstrong. First, an awareness of God's presence. There is this heightened consciousness of God. People walk into church gatherings and they're immediately convicted of sin. People open up their Bibles and they feel like God is speaking directly into their hearts. People just know that God is in their midst and it changes everything. Second, an uncommon readiness to hear from God. So God's people have always been nourished, created by God's word. But during revival, people just have this insatiable craving to hear from God. In private devotions, in public gatherings, to hear the truth proclaimed, to hear the truth from God. And these aren't new truths. They're the historic themes of our faith, of, of God's holiness, of our sinfulness, of Christ's redemption. As Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In revival, people want, lost people, found people want to hear God's word and their faith grows and deepens in just a insane measure. Third, a deep conviction over one's sin. When people become aware of God's presence and hear clearly of His holiness through His word, they can't help but come face to face with their own sinful conviction, condition, sinful condition. So they experience what the prophet Isaiah does in chapter 6. They see the Lord, they fall down, they cry out to Him, woe is me. For I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So revival brings conviction. Conviction brings confession. And this is on a large scale with lots of intensity. For heartfelt repentance over that sin. So closely related, when we experience re- revival, we're also moved to forsake our sin. So repentance involves a change in heart that leads to a change in behavior. It leads to a turning. Maybe you've heard of repentance described that way, as a turning. During the revival, scores of unbelievers do turn from their sin and place faith in Christ. But believers also dramatically break of old patterns and ways. Repentance. So repentance is for believers as well in the Christian life. Luther once said that Christ willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. But, believers, we should see this gap between God's holiness and our sin, and we should seek to fall on our faces and repent of that, but that gap is especially seen during times of awakening as God's spirit moves among his people. Fifth, an extraordinary concern for others. So communities are changed because of people beginning to look outward from themselves. As they begin to love God more, they begin to love neighbor as well. Armstrong writes this, when the church begins to act more like what she was designed to be, her life spills over into the world with great force and effect. Even those who despise revivals must admit that authentic awakenings have helped to build hospitals, taught the illiterate to read, Clothed the naked, fed the poor, moved entire nations to act more justly, and even caused general reductions in crime and family dissolution. So, read some books about revival. There's one called God-Sized Vision by Woodbridge and Hanson. If you don't believe that, read more about revivals. It's true. Awakening changes cities. As you have citizens that are newly reborn and recently revived that serve on mission to those around them in word and deed. And in addition to that, these revivals have led led to mission movements as leaders are raised up, as missionaries are sent out. This work of God leads to genuine love that overflows to those around us. So those are five things that you've historically seen happen when God comes to church and when he brings revival he turns things upside down the church is doing ordinary things and then suddenly extraordinary things happen and God's people have this renewed love for him and his gospel that comes from the Lord here's something I want you to think about maybe Jesus needed to come to the church in America, and flip over some tables. Like, that's sort of one of the the tropes today when people are going off on Facebook. You know, I'm just like Jesus flipping tables. You know, I think Jesus needed to come into the church and flip some tables. I, I love the writings of Mark Sayers, who's from Australia, and he's talking broadly about Western culture, but he does call out America. And he says that comfortable times create comfortable Christians. America was comfortable, we were comfortable, and maybe 2020 and beyond are some of the best things that could have ever happened to us and to the world. Carson, in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to initiate a couple of things that I want you to look out for to stay tuned for to invite you into. uh, First, a couple of prayer meetings on Wednesdays that will take place right here. One, in early morning for people before they go to work, if that schedule works for you. Another one at noon for people who can join us during lunch break. That'll start here in just a couple of weeks. Look after that. Second, we're in the process of of launching a monthly night of worship and prayer. It'll likely be on Fridays where we'll come together and sing and call out to the Lord together. Stay tuned for those. Let's read Psalm 85, let's hear those words, and let's ask, let's plead for our Lord to move in our present. Let's move on to my third point. Let's trust and expect our Father to move in big ways in our future. So we look back to our past, we remember what God once did, how he's worked, we act in the presence, we beg him to do that again, and then we trust him for the future, and we even expect him to move. Here are verses 8 through 13 again, where God encourages us to live in that expectation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. I always tell the people that we train to preach to not drink water during your sermon, but I helped us beat Vanderbilt yesterday. <laughs> In verse 8, it's like one prophet or priest steps forward And you may have noticed the language shifts from second person plural, that's us, to first person singular, me. And this person, whoever it is, starts preaching, assuring us of his promises, of God's purposes. God will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Peace, yeah, that shalom that we talked about last week, God will bring that to us, he'll bring it to his creation. God will turn His people back. His salvation is near. His glory will return. That's verse 9. So God's calling to us and telling us to take hope. But look down at verses 12 and 13. The Lord will give what is good. The land will yield its increase. God's righteousness will lead His people again. So the preacher is saying we can trust Him to work. We can even expect Him to work. But think about the verses in between, verses 10 and 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness come together. Righteousness and peace embrace as a kiss. Faithfulness comes from the ground, meeting righteousness in the air. That's a a beautiful couple of verses right there. Right there, glorious. But I want you to think about three things that we see in that section of scripture. Um, And the first is this. Revival fits with God's character. It fits with his character. Think about all those words um, that we just read. What's in their background? I think Exodus 34 is God's words to Moses on the mountain, where it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is who he is. He's a just God. We need to to read that in fear. But he's one who longs to forgive. And with that, he also loves to renew and refresh, to awaken the people of God. To soften hearts of stone, to melt away the ice in our hearts. This is his character, and this is why we can pray with hope. Second, revival comes down on Christmas. There in verse 9, that that glory coming to dwell. Verse 9, it brings to mind the tabernacle in the temple, right? Where God's presence is among his people. God loves to restore that to his children again. But it comes fully and finally in Christ. Right? There's this verse that we love to read at Christmas time, John 1:14, that communicates this. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to bring God's presence to us. And he wants us as his children to experience that. Third revival is accomplished at the cross. So Christians have long seen verse 10 fulfilled in Jesus. So God loves to show steadfast love and peace. So he longs to give mercy to his people. But he's also a holy God, right? He's one of righteousness and faithfulness to who he is. So how does a perfectly righteous God pour out kindness to sinful humans? It's through Jesus. So they meet, they kiss in Christ. So on the cross, God takes the penalty for our sin and God displays His righteousness and we're forgiven. He also shows His mercy there. If we believe we're now right with Christ, with God again through Christ, and because of that we have this hope. I want you to hear how Dane Orland puts it. He's the one that wrote Gentle and Lowly. Uh, This is from his um, devotional Psalter that walks through the Psalms and just gives a paragraph or two on each Psalm, uh, helping us to understand. It's so good. But he says, Are you feeling dead and dry? Pray Psalm 85. Meditate on it in the morning and in the evening. After all, God has proven that he will not let such a prayer go unanswered. How did he prove it? By showing in the fullness of time exactly how righteousness and peace would kiss each other. He sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and in so doing provide true and lasting peace for any who humbles himself enough to receive it. And here are these words. Jesus has wiped away any reason for God to withhold his renewing grace from you. So God's people through the Psalms could pray this way back then but we can pray it now even more because Jesus has come and Christ is on our side. Of course, we're going to live through cycles in this life, right? Ups and downs because we're humans, because we're sinners, because we're on this side of the new heavens and the new earth but if we're in Christ, we don't have to just settle for cool hearts, for dead souls. We can go to our Father. We can trust Him. We can even expect Him to meet us and make us new. Not because we're good, but because of His grace. And Psalm 85 reminds us of this. I want to go back to those sons of Korah. Does that name sound familiar? Do you know the ancestors of those guys? Or maybe you've heard the story from Exodus 16? Korah is the guy who gets frustrated... And, you know, I can kind of identify. It's probably because he got tired of carting that huge tent around. And he decides to stand up to Moses. And he actually grabs with him another 250 guys and leads a coup. And he just decides, I don't want to be a priest. I don't want to be just a priest. I want to be the boss. And so he basically dares God to choose a leader. Me, Moses, take your pick, Lord. And God... Makes it pretty clear, right? He opens up the ground. It sucks his immediate family into it. And then those other 250, fire from heaven, immediately takes them out. The descendants of those guys who wrote this psalm, that's this guy. So you see here that God's just, but God delights to show mercy. He loves to pour out his grace. There's hope for all of us. Whoever we are, wherever we come from, wherever we've been, we can pray Psalm 85 because our Father delights to pour out His grace. So I say let's trust and expect our Father to move in big ways in the future. So summarizing, we want revival. What do we do? First we pray. We've said that enough. For revival, we believe it's a work of God, so we beg God to turn from His anger and turn back to us. But we prepare. Secondly, you know, you might have heard this word "reformation." We know it. Hopefully, you do from the, the Protestant Reformation. You know, the one that we usually capitalize. But reformation is just aligning ourselves, our churches, with God's work. So it's turning from idols. It's turning back to God. It's reading His Bible and saying, "We're going to do what He says." Reformation. So. We pray, we reform, we, we rest in a sovereignty, we claim our responsibility. We have to do both. But, Carlos, let's pursue renewal, let's pursue awakening, let's pursue revival in our personal lives and in our corporate life together here as a church. I know it's been midterms time for students here, and I know there's been a lot of praying and maybe a little bit of prepping as students head into those. But as as churches, as the churches were tested during these difficult times, we need the the same. As I started, we should be a people who pray and prepare for God to move in revival. As I've said a couple of times, the last few years have been pretty rough. The church in America has suffered a great deal. Our hearts have struggled in many ways. And it would be so easy to believe that God has forgotten us, that God has abandoned us. The Mark Sayers, again, the Australian guy, he argues um, that the conditions are just right for where God tends to work. He calls this time we're in a gray zone, and he gets that from, from military language, where we're moving from one era to another, and... Our world has just changed so much in the past couple of years. It will never be the same, but maybe the air we're moving out of and, and into another, maybe that's not such a bad thing, and what we can gain in that could be so much greater because it's ripe with so many possibilities. Sayers argues that the world has lulled the church of Jesus to sleep, that the turbulence of these times can serve to wake us up. Again, to move us to turn from idols back to God, to move God to turn back to us, to restore, to revive, to work in powerful ways. Suffering and struggle can be our friends. Right? Back to the girl dumping me and God using that to refresh me. They show us our need. They cause us to lift our eyes to the hills where we ask God to work and we get to see his hand. Sayers compares these days to Krakatoa this island in Indonesia, that in August of 1883 was rocked by this volcanic explosion where three-quarters of the island were destroyed. Over 30,000 people were killed. And in just a moment, that island, the, the terrain, everything going on was dramatically changed. A team of scientists visited shortly after, and everything was different. Two mountain peaks instantly leveled all the flora all the fauna had completely disappeared but just a few years later another team visited the island and they were amazed by all the signs of life lush vegetation had returned animal life was everywhere and this is how Sayers puts it what looked like destruction was the phase before germination The devastation created a blank page upon which a new story could be told. The gray zone became the seedbed of renewal. Krakatoa reminds us that what may look like decline, loss or even obliteration can be revival's launching pad for such renewal to occur, all it takes is a single seed. Perhaps this trial we've all faced will be a catalyst for change. What's felt like death will be the pathway to life. Perhaps refreshing rains will pour down on his people again. It'll moisten our dry spirits. Maybe the rays of the sun are about to break into our worlds and melt our cold hearts and fill us with joy again. Let's be a place that prays for that and preps for that card. Well, I just want to finish that quote I began with from Ray. It's so good. Where he says, my plea comes down to this. Let's not neglect the revival dimension in our churches. And then he says, it's biblical. It's right. It is of God. Let's stop being so timid. Let's trust God so much that we follow his word without qualifying it to death. None of us have long to live. Why not do something boldly radical before you die? Follow God's word for Don't censor it. Don't whittle it down to the narrow confines of your comfort zones. Trust that God is wise in all His work and ways. Pray for more of Him than you've ever had before, and then go beyond praying. Expect Him to show Himself near you in new ways that will delight you and honor His own name. Venture your whole personal fulfillment on God, withholding nothing. He will be honored, and you will be amply rewarded. Carlos, we should be a people who pray and prepare for God to move in revival. Let's pray now. God would you restore us again would you revive us your people would you reach down into our hearts into our church and would you turn us toward you would you honor your name through that Lord would you give us joy that blows everything here on earth away we ask you to do that we ask you to do that in Christ because of the cross because of why you we know it fits with your character, Father, that you are a God who wants to bless us, that you want to draw near to us. Would you do that? We pray, Lord. In Christ's name, Amen.